Lance Canzano, I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Canzano's Baldface Truth. I think if you are studying expansion in college athletics, you would include the University of Utah's move to the Pac-12 conference as Exhibit A on how you join a conference with both feet on the ground, running, and, you know, back-to-back Pac-12 championships. A lot of continuity. Chris Hill, 31 years in leadership, helped bridge that addition to the Pac-12 as Utah moved in. Became a Power 5 member in 2011. He's a New Jersey native. Played basketball at Rutgers. And came to Salt Lake City as a graduate assistant, as a coach. It's a guy who's got rich background, boots on the ground experience in athletic departments. I think there's a shortage of that when you look around the country and you talk about the conference commissioners, certainly Larry Scott. Certainly, I think you look at, uh, you know, like Kevin Warren, Big Ten Conference, former commissioner of the Big Ten, Brett Yormark, even George Klyovkov. These are not former ADs. These are not former coaches. Chris Hill is joining us uh, for a conversation about all such things. How you doing? I'm doing well, John. Good to get together with you again. No, I appreciate you making time. I thought of you today because I wrote about Larry Scott, and I thought, you know what? Those ADs back in the day, they were uh, charged with working alongside him, and it probably didn't feel like you were working alongside him very often. But, uh, you know, let's let's before we get into all of that, let's just talk about the transition of Utah to the Pac-12 back in the day because San Diego State SMU might be making that kind of transition. What were you guys thinking because you did it right? Well, we wanted to we wanted to make sure we just didn't waltz in, you know. And we've been running our program pretty hard and putting together facilities. And you know, with the eye, uh, I think I told you before, if if somebody's interested in expansion, we want to be ready to move quick. And we just made a commitment. In fact, uh, we paid it back. But I told the president we have got to invest right away in football and men's and women's basketball and our key other sport gymnastics. And we might go in the hole a little bit, but we'll pay it back and. And that's what happened. We we didn't want to start. We knew if we started competitive, and now it's gotten really competitive, that uh, we'd be in good shape. We wanted to not just be in the Pac-12, but we wanted to be somebody and, and, and make it happen and not go hat in hand. The things that you did to lay the groundwork for that, was it investment in facilities, or did you feel like you were already there? Was it you know, coaching salaries? Uh, were there things were not thinking about? Because – I know as media members and fans, we often don't think about the language inside an athletic department. Well, I, I think the, the facilities we had, you know, we were developing, and, and uh, in a way they expanded. You know, we, we never had any debt, but then when we got into Pac-12, our $16 million football facility became $30 million, and we borrowed some money, which we, were allowed, which we were able to do. So that, and we had to make sure we paid our top-level uh, sports I mentioned, and then the other ones would catch up. But immediately we had to make sure our guys were in a ball game so we would have continuity in in the success we had. And, 
you know, so, and we had to have some patience too. No, it wouldn't be easy, but now you, it's been just great. You guys uh, have, uh, you know, done well with Kyle Whittingham. He, you know, you oversaw a, a long tenure, multiple coaches, but what, what did you see in Kyle Whittingham? And, and, and I know we've talked about this before, but there were a couple of years that were, you know, mediocre by his standards that, and you stuck with him. What, what did you see that made you stick with him? Well, I, you know, I saw somebody that would give us continuity. Also, he evaluated talent really well. Uh, he's smart. He's tough, organized. So all those things kind of lead up to, and he had a, a, you know, a couple of years with Urban, and that I think helped him a lot. And then when we got through rough, sled, rough sledding, we kind of knew that we were still trying to recruit into the Pac-12, and, and we felt that, you know, let's give this a shot. And let, let's not react too quickly. Let's keep our head down and just go forward, and that's what Kyle's done. Is that hard to do when, you, you know, when you're in that seat and, you know, you're hearing the fans and you're looking at, you know, revenue, and or maybe it's different at Utah because, you know, you draw there and you've got fan support. You look at all those things, and I want to be really simple about this. If if you have if you're in charge of somebody, and the, that employee comes into your office, and they say, "I want to resign," are you thrilled and jumping on the table, and you're so happy, or are you going, "Oh my God, I don't think this is the right thing." So, in the very simplest thing, if that would have happened, I would have not have been happy that Kyle was moving on. You know, so uh, I just you, you can't ignore all the other things. But you do have to ask yourself a question about that. And I think sometimes people react to, uh, you know, you need to pay attention to money. You need to pay attention to all those things. But is this guy going to help bring us along, develop the players and get there and fight the good fight to get there? Chris Hill with us, former University of Utah athletic director. Uh, I mentioned Larry Scott. Um, uh, I think, you know, there's a tax, there's a hangover, whatever you want to call it. What was it like to work alongside Larry? Because I think he could have brought the ADs into the fold, put his arms around you, worked in conjunction with you, but I get the impression that was not the feeling. No, I think that, you know, and he got hired because they wanted to get the opposite of what Tom Hansen, I think, was. They wanted to get somebody with some flash and innovation and, and all that stuff, which is fine. And, you know, at first everybody was kind of enamored because we – had a nice TV contract, and but, you know, that was the market. It wasn't really um, like some special deal we did. And then as we got into two or three years, it was like, wait a minute, there's no communication. This Pac-12 network's kind of not working the way we thought. You know, we're in this expensive building. You know, and people started to, after two or three years under his leadership, were just saying, hmm, and trying to communicate your presidents that uh, there was some, some concern. You know, not, not like ADs are going to hire and fire somebody, but I think with your boss, your president, you got to tell them some things you're feeling and seeing, or else they're in the dark. But I, I just think, you know, Larry did a good job of what they call today, I guess, called managing up. And he kind of dealt with the presidents, and God bless them, they're busy enough that, you know, they're not going to be able to get into the weeds like the ADs did. Yeah, and I think that I talked about it off the top of the show because, you know, I keep getting asked from people, like, how did that happen? How did, you know, and I said the presidents and chancellors had holes in their own budgets. They were they were focused on faculty and tenure and Title IX and whatever else uh, popped up. It's whack-a-mole for the presidents and chancellors. And I think 
they needed a commissioner who would kind of handle the business of sports, especially as the athletic departments became self-sustaining. Um, you know, the, the, the famous, you know, interaction, I, I've never asked you, but I've heard it from other ADs, that, you know, Larry Scott's in the room, you guys are in Vegas, um, and there's questions about revenue, budgets, TV deal, and you start to push back a little bit in that meeting. Is it true that he told you, like, you know, be happy with what you have or, you, you know, you're lucky for what you get, or how did that go down? It was, yeah, it kind of went down like that, and that kind of it did, you know, and I don't know if he was directing just at me personally, but, you know, I, I'm kind of a devil's advocate guy, and then if we be closed doors, we can hash it out, then we open a door and we're supportive. But when you don't feel like you're heard or dismissed, it's just hard, you know, and I don't have any ax to grind with that. That was just a moment of just like saying, whoa, this is how it's going to be. And it's hard to, as you mentioned, the presidents are so busy and it's just hard to take a, you know, a hard look at, you know, there's a wall between the ADs and us and people like Bob Bowlesby, who knows athletics at the big 12 and Jim Delaney, they understood the value of getting input from the ADs, but knowing the president's sort of boss, it's a fine line, but they valued the AD position, right? I think some, some people come in and they really, just want to do the marketing and sales and not really understand all the nuances of, of being in college athletics. It's not, you know, it's, you don't have to be a genius, but you have to understand there are unique things about what ADs do, just like any other job. You know, I, cause I listened to the radio, I couldn't do your job. And cause you have played sports or been around sports. You really couldn't do my job. It's just different, you know? And I think ADs needed to be more, not have that wall between us and the presidents. Where is all this headed, Chris? As you look at the landscape and TV driving a lot or wagging the dog, so mm -hmm. to speak, you know, I, I'm worried about the ecosystem. I'm worried we're going to lose what college athletics used to be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just, I, I just think you sometimes have to attack the reality of it and have in your mind, you know, we're not going to be like we used to be. But I was at our women's softball game last week, and I know people may roll their eyes. And that, and that win to move on and the kids are there, and it's a pretty cool deal. And you, I, I'd hate to give that up. And there's also so many football players that by their second year know they're not going to play in the pros and enjoy traveling with team and everything. So I don't want to give that up, but I don't want to be not naive enough that there's tons of money and players you know, need to – get paid, paid either NLI or whatever. I'm just afraid, or my thoughts are, and I think you've mentioned before, that it's going to get smaller and smaller to those like 40 big-time football schools and everybody else is something else, you know. But at the end of the day, you'd hate to break it all apart, you know, with all the other 90% of the students. Enjoy it. The expansion of the college football playoff, I thought, was a move from the presidents and chancellors nationally to, to pump the brakes on that consolidation you're talking about. Best case scenario, well, I, yeah, how do, you, how do you see that, and what's the best case scenario when the playoff expands? Well, I'll tell you what, now, now the, the Pac-12 has a much, much easier entree in, which has always been the rub. You know, you're not in, you're not in, you're not in. Well... If it's at 10 schools, man, the Utes have a really great chance of being in the national playoff. And that that makes your fans, your conference feel better. So 
in a way, I think expansion kind of pointed his finger at the Pac-12 and said, this is a good idea for you guys, you know? So we're back then, we're never going to be called. So I like what they did. I really do. The, you know, I, I keep help slow down some things. I mean, why would you leave our conference now if you have, you know, enough money, but we're never, we're never going to have the same money as the SEC or the big 10. We never have, we never will. Okay. But we can be respectful. We can get enough. There are enough good players and we can compete. And now if you can play in a national championship, that kind of mitigates it a little bit. So why take a breath? Let's, this is not a bad deal. Yeah. And you mentioned that, and that, that was going to be my next question is, you know, I keep thinking what the Pac-12 and maybe the Big 12 and even the ACC need to do is they just need to keep the Big 10 and the SEC in view of the front windshield, right? You know, and right. but you've worked it. You've managed the budget. When you are at a deficit of, you know, let's say the Big 10 schools end up like at $65 million in their distribution and the Pac-12 ends up at $35 million. That's thirty million dollars a year. Can you compete in football and men's basketball, or how do you how do you manage that kind of deficit? Well, you can compete. You got to get good people. You got to not waste money. You got to uh, you know be careful, and you can get support with the university and other things. But you know, it just as a funny point, I was at the softball game this weekend, and I ran into our women's volleyball coach who's been there for. 20 years we hired her when she was just a kid when I was a kid. And I reminisced about we played Texas A&M in a volleyball match, and we lost in the fifth set with extra points by two. And I said, you know, Beth, if we just had a $100 million more in our budget, I think we could have beat her. <laughs> and I said, there they are. I mean, so how do you play these teams, you got to be smart. You got to not waste your money. You got to schedule carefully. You got to have support from your community. All those things add up. And and then there's enough good players that if you have coaches that can identify them, you know, I, I do worry about the portal now because, you know, if you're really good, I mean, Utah's going to keep their players in football because they've done so well, but there could be others that are just going to be hurting. But you know, I'm, and I think in your question to the budget, the budget is very, very important. At the same time, you you got to win, you got to have good coaches, and you can get it done. I think we felt good about it. We weren't cheap about things. We paid our coaches well. We we did some things, and and we watched just to make sure that we didn't go in debt too much. You know, our facilities are really good, but they're not gold-plated doors. They're really good, but I, you know, I, so. Anyway. I, I asked yeah. the same. I asked the same question of you know a sitting AD in the Big Ten. I said, "How do the Pac-12 schools compete?" And and his thought was, "Well, they're not. They're still going to spend in football and in men's basketball. That's right. not. That's not where they will cut corners or maybe go on. You know, a little bit more frugal. But how do you do that with Title IX in the background? And and who ends up? Where where are the casualties in that model?" There may be some casualties in some of the men's sports. You know, everybody says that, but I don't want to mention that too much because I love the women's sports. Title IX is real. It's supposed to be there, and it's happening, and it's paying off so well for the young women. And so I, I think what you have to do is make sure you fund those women's sports really well, and there may be some of the other sports you can't quite spend as much money on. But you can strategically say, hey, we, we can win – in women's gymnastics and basketball and 
those sports, and maybe there's some sports we can win at, but not at as high a level because of our location. You know, I mean, I can't believe our men's tennis team won that back, tied for the Pac-12 championship, but that's a sport when I was there saying, we can't pay at the high of the league. We just can't do that because we're, our success is not going to be as high there. So let's put our money into, you know, women's basketball. Chris Hill, former University of Utah athletic director, is with us. Um, look back in your time, you know, and I know we all focus on football, men's basketball. You brought up softball. You know, when you look back in your time as an athletic director, um, I know you were at a ton of events, but when were you having the most fun? Okay. <laughs> well, the most fun, we were talking, the most fun is being on the road and, and you know, seeing the kids interacting with the ho- in the ho- hotel uh after, you know, win or loss, you're sitting at the bar wherever having a couple of drinks with the assistant coaches, the head coach. Those trips on the road were a blast. You know, winning's a blast. And then for me, I told people I was the only administrator on the university campus that could actually walk out of the office and see their, see their students, see their progress. You know, and I used to walk over to work out at lunchtime and run into some of the students. And I always, they always thought I was a little crazy because I'd have a – you know, kind of a wise guy sense of humor. And we'd get there and I'd weigh in uh, before I worked out and some of the other teams are weighing in. I go, God, do my shoes look that much heavier today? Then I'd walk away. And they look at me like that. So part of for me is on the road, obviously the victories. And then those little things of just running into students around the place. Chris, I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, um, you know, I know you pull for this conference because you were part of it, part of bringing right. Utah in. Uh, all of the nay and naysayers, the gloom and doom, you know, there's just a lot of misinformation out there. But how confident are you that Utah, let's just talk there because you know that community, that Utah really is committed to the Pac-12 and and is, is on board? That's what I – I'm hearing that's what I'd very much like. Um, the schools are so fantastic in the Pac-12, such great locations and all. I, I just think that Utah's going to be fine. I, that's what I hear, um, not directly, but indirectly around here. And, you know, I'm a little bit in the same position with you. But for me, if you're just sitting in my chair, I don't want to be naive because a lot of people are lying to each other, like they go to the Big Ten tomorrow or whatever. But For me, the ideal thing would be to stay where we are for at least the next five years. Chris Hill, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, You have a great day. Bye now. There he he is, former University of Utah athletic director. If I'm San Diego State, I'm calling that guy, and I'm going, hey, we'd like for you to consult on our potential move to the Pac-12 conference. Um, Really good stuff to unpack there. I think you get an idea of uh, what it was like to work with Larry Scott alongside him. And, uh, you know, no axe to grind from Chris Hill, but I think Pac-12 fans should be really upset about how that era unfolded. It was, uh, it was the, you know, we talk about all the time in our family about the decisions you make today and how they sort of impact Tomorrow, a year from now, 10 years from now, like you literally can go watch the moving sliding doors and you can go, wow, if only you had taken this direction instead of that direction, you could do all that stuff all day long. The Pac-12 needed in that Larry Scott era to have the presidents and chancellors check him. 
They did not, for whatever reason. They did not get that done. And in the end, I think, you know, it paved the way for USC and UCLA to leave the conference. Um, I love that interview, and I love the wealth of expertise that somebody like Chris Hill has, but I can also hear in his voice that, you know, you have all this legislation nationally, players and uh, you know, athletes in college uh, may earn the right to unionize shortly and uh, bargain collectively, and in that it then becomes some derivative of professional sports. I I don't want consolidation. Like as a fan, I don't want there to be only 40 teams in co major college football that have uh, a chance to win. But I kind of feel like right now, with a four-team playoff, there's only about 12 teams that, when I look at the AP Top 25 at the beginning of the year, the preseason poll, there's only about 12 teams that I could see really having a reasonable chance to, to dream. And, you know, about five of them are in the SEC. And, you know, two or three more in the Big Ten. So we're really only talking about, you know, one or two teams in the Pac-12, maybe one, two teams in the Big 12, maybe one or two in the ACC, and then everybody else is left out. So maybe we already are in a place where major college football just consists of 40 programs. Um, I think uh, it's interesting because Northwestern president, Michael Schill, the former Oregon president, he gave an interview, a faculty interview, in which he kind of talked about the potential for further consolidation and, you know, would the Big Ten one day, you know, he says it made sense from a travel standpoint to add more schools from the West Coast. And I guess from a travel standpoint, it would make sense. But if you tell me that major college athletics is moving towards a system where you are going to have athletes be employees – I can tell you back in return that Illinois and Northwestern and Purdue and Indiana and Minnesota, they're not going to want to add members from the western part of the United States and subsidize them in their TV deal. They're going to want to do quite the opposite. They're going to want to keep every penny and not have to compete against others. And they're going to go, hey, you go over there and be, uh, you don't want to be part of the top 40. You're going to have to do it somewhere else. Um, it's really complicated times. I... I fear that we have already lost our hold on the sport, and at the same time, I can't wait for college football season to start because I can't wait to see what happens. I want you to leave it here. we got Punch and Audio still ahead. you got the BFT statewide. My favorite part of that last uh, interview with Chris Hill, the AD at Utah, was uh, him kind of talking a little bit about softball and Utah softball. Softball programs in the, the Pac-12 conference uh, having a great season. And uh, him talking a little bit about kind of how joyful that was. You could hear it in his voice, the competition of college athletics. Love that stuff and uh, love hearing administrators like that. Um, I've often thought, like, you know, sometimes I, I, early in my career I would, I would enter a press box and I would see some sports writer or radio show host or television personality that had been in that press box forever and uh i often thought to myself like you know when i'm like 85 years old i'm not gonna be sitting in the press box i'm not gonna be wearing a credential like apologies to bill shonley who i loved but that's just not me it's kind of it's not my that's not my uh that's not my act that's not how i roll and i uh i ultimately though when i hear chris hill talking like that 
it may it reminds me that the best part of being at games is the stuff that you guys get to enjoy, not the stuff I'm doing. Like I could be in the press box covering the games, and you know, and I have my friends. They always ask me. They're like, "What's Dan Lanning like? What's Jonathan Smith like? What's Kyle Whittingham like? What's you know, what is it like to cover? The, who's the most? The kids will always ask. Who's the most famous person you've ever interviewed? Um, Anna's over in Taiwan. This is a great example. So she has a uh, cousin who lives in Taiwan who plays professional basketball, and other cousins who are just huge NBA fans, and she. FaceTimed with me to show me two cousins who were out in the backyard of her aunt's house in Taiwan who were shooting baskets, and one of them had a LeBron jersey on, and the other one had another NBA jersey on. I couldn't quite make out, but she was like, all they wanted to know was, has he ever interviewed Kobe? Has he ever interviewed LeBron? Uh, Damian Lillard, you know, what is Damian Lillard like? All of that, the stuff that happens, you know, with the NBA doing such a good job globally of becoming a brand. Like, that's how you know Adam Silver's league is winning, is uh, you go to Asia and you go to a playground. Uh, I was in ba- during the Beijing Olympics in 2008, uh, David Stern's NBA at the time. I remember driving by the playground. Every single kid on the playground was wearing a different NBA jersey. It was ridiculous. I was like, this is remarkable. Um but it is about the competition in the end. It is about the competition. And so I do think, like, while I say, hey, I won't be in a press box, I won't be doing this, I won't be doing a radio show, I won't, like, I'm, it, I, there's a high likelihood, high probability I'll be at some games. And I'll be there because I love to be around sports. I'm envious of you. I walked through the parking lot uh, over the years at Hudson Stadium, at Research Stadium, uh, at visiting stadiums, and I'm going to work. And, but I'm looking around, and I can smell the tailgate. I can feel the anticipation. There's a Nerf ball in the air. Somebody's dad's tearing his rotator cuff trying to throw a, you know, a deep pass down the middle of the gravel parking lot. And, uh, you know, people are, you know, enjoying themselves on a sunny, cool, crisp autumn day or a warm day or, better yet, a day game. Uh, where their college football is being played. Like on yesterday's show, I did that whole segment. We did that whole segment about who's the most enjoyable player you ever watched play. I tweeted about it, and the re- the replies to the tweet are just going and going and going because people want to share that. It's part of the joy of sports. Not all this other stuff that we have engaged in. It's not about media rights. Nobody's sitting at the tailgate with a T-shirt on that says, Go Media Rights. Nobody's sitting at home in their living room with pom-poms or their face painted going, you know, I hope my athletic department gets a great revenue distribution this offseason. It's not what it's about. It's about the actual competition. It's about getting to know players. It's about, you know, as uh, Maya Angelou said, you know, it's, it's not what you said. It's not what you did. It's how you know how people made you feel. That's what you'll never forget. Um, it's that's the same could be said of sports. You know, you'll forget the score, you'll you'll forget the details of the game, but you will never forget how you felt at the stadium. You'll never forget the feeling that you got. And I've had that a few times, even in the press box. But it's far easier to get. When you are in the stands, in the stadium, you're in a seat, you're eating a hot dog, you're having a beer, you're with friends or you're with family or you're with your kids, and you are immersed in an experience. 
You know, I can tell you I, I still get chills. I still um, am imp- wildly impressed by what I see at the stadium and players and when Bo Nix makes a play or Oregon's, uh, you know, running back, Bucky Irving last year, I thought, gosh, what a great college football player. That guy's, guys are just a great college football player. Or at Oregon State, Jack Coletto or Jaden Grant. Come on. give me Like, give me Jaden Grant in that story, walk on, turned team captain in the end making like the biggest play of Oregon State's season in the Civil War game when he sniffs out the quarterback uh, keeper and makes a tackle for a one-yard gain and Oregon State takes over and down. Like, come on. That's what it's about. That's college football experience. It's not about these commissioners. It's not about Larry Scott making $50 million off the backs of players. It's uh, Frankly, it's not about the transfer portal NIL, even though those things matter in roster construction in college athletics. What it's about is the feeling that you have at the stadium. And I'll never forget this decades ago when Oregon was hosting Michigan at Autzen Stadium. Uh, People may remember, it's very unusual, right, that Michigan would come to Autzen Stadium to play a game, but there they were. And, uh, you know, Oregon's hosting them, and Oregon's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and they're cool and... Yeah, they're wearing highlighter yellow, and uh, they're playing Michigan. And I went into the crowd, and I found a fan who was blind. Okay? This is evidence. This is Exhibit A to what I'm talking about. This gentleman was blind, sight-impaired, season ticket holder, attended games with his father. Okay? Middle-aged guy going with his dad who's, you know, 25, 30 years older. And found this blind guy who is a diehard fan at the games, and wrote about his experience. He couldn't see anything that was happening in what was the biggest home football game of, you know, Oregon's season and maybe, uh, you know, the best biggest home opponent that they had, maybe maybe them in Oklahoma, the non-conference opponents you can talk about that are big time at Oregon. You know, Ohio State scheduled to come back in like 2032, 2034, but it's these are few and far between and yet this is a fan who told me you could feel the game right and i thought you know there's something to see in that like literally play on words there's something to see he would listen to the jerry allen broadcast but the crowd got so loud during portions of the game that he couldn't hear the radio he couldn't really tell what was happening on the field until Don Essig, the play-by-play announcer, would you know say you know pass completed for 32 yards and first down Oregon or whatever happened, until that moment, he was not aware of it. He was just feeling what was happening in the stadium, and I think that's what it is about. It is about the feeling you have when Damian Lillard hits a 37-foot shot in Paul George's face to win a playoff series. It's about the feeling you have when Marcus Mariota rips off a 55-yard run for a touchdown and uh, puts Oregon in the driver's seat on their way to potentially playing for the national championship. It's about Oregon State coming up with a uh, touchdown and a two-point conversion on the road at Fresno State in the closing minutes in front of a hostile crowd. And Jonathan Smith going for it and going for the win instead of opting to go to overtime, and the disbelief on Jeff Tedford's face on the opposing sideline, followed by a smile from Tedford 
Like, I, you know, that to me said so much about that moment. And that is what sports is about. We've had great stories over the years. Um, you know, we told the story last uh, year ago, Mark Appel, the great uh, story, Stanford pitcher, drafted, you know, number one overall, toiled in the minor leagues, arm injuries, shoulder injuries, surgeries, frustration, futility. He finally gets to the big leagues and gets a cup of coffee and is able to pitch just a little bit and face a batter. And in his first inning, he strikes out a major league hitter. And the ball gets thrown back to him on the mound. One out, you know, a PA announcer is announcing the next batter. And the camera cuts to Appel's face as he's getting ready to get back up on the pitching rubber. And there's just this little smile. And it wasn't him taunting the hitter. It was him going, I just struck a guy out in a big league appearance. I got glassy eyes. I, You know, we've had him on the show, Appel. I don't really know him. I have friends that are far closer to him, Pac-12 fans that followed him when he was at Stanford. But we understand the struggle with your own limitations. That's what sports is. Every single athlete bouncing up their, against their limitations. It's a struggle against your limitations. Every day I deal with my limitations. The, the letter carrier, he deals with his limitations. You deal with your limitations. It's a it's a very it's a universal theme. It's a this is this is every man. This is all of us. You know they tell you in high school. I remember the, my high school English teacher, Mr. Sergstad, good teacher. Uh, he would talk about you know the themes that you see in literature. You know, man versus nature, man versus the universe, and man versus man. But there's nothing better than man versus himself. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face hey, Sorry Truth to interrupt the podcast, but if you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.